continuing in the sermon series, Stand Firm, His Grace is Enough. Pastor Ron will be speaking here from chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. He starts this section by saying, Beloved, because he's summing up all that he's just said. Some of what we talked about last week, that, that you... If you're in the kingdom of God, if you're in Christ, are right at the center, right at the epicenter of what God is doing in the world. You may not always feel like that. Sometimes you feel like you're all alone. Sometimes you feel like you're isolated. Sometimes you feel like it's it's just taken a long time coming when they talk about an inheritance ready to be revealed. But what I wanted you to hear last week, because it's what Peter wanted you to hear, and what he wanted the people of Asia Minor to hear, is you're right at the center right at the center of what God is doing in the world. It is so important that you hear that. Not just hear it, but hear it in your heart. He sums it up just before he comes to Beloved by saying, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That is what you are if you're in Christ. All of that, all of that is how Peter Describes you. And it's amazing to me that Peter, a Jew of Jews, in fact, in the beginning, even after, after Christ had gone back, he was having a hard time with all of this Gentile stuff, all of this nation stuff. Paul had to bring correction to him at times. God had to just show him in visions with Cornelius. This Peter, who was a Jew of Jews and actually was an apostle to the Jews because he knew a Jew, if anyone did, this Peter takes that Old Testament language that initially was spoken to the Jewish nation and he extends it. He extends it beyond that, just to stop for a minute and, and realize that is amazing. That it's Peter. This is Peter writing these words. Peter. Because Peter saw that it was one story. It was not multiple things that God was doing. He was doing one thing. God was saving a people. Whether Jew or Gentile, He was saving a people. And those people then He describes in those words, in that language, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation people for his own possession. It is so important. It is so important that we understand what Pastor Jason said about promises. What he said is spot on. I would add to his story about if this happens and if this happens and if this happens, I'll do this. 
I would have added on maybe because he's not God. He's not sovereign. Something might block even his intention to want to do it if all of those things happen. Maybe a car pulls out in front of him and there's no more going anywhere else because the car won't move. But you see, that never happens to God. Nobody pulls out in front of him and stops his purposes and his plan. And his plan is to save a people. And these people are at the epicenter of that. And if you're in the kingdom of God, if you're in Christ today, you are at that very epicenter of what God is doing. And that's exactly what Peter's trying to communicate to these beleaguered Christians in Asia Minor, 30 years after the resurrection, who's thinking it's taken a long time coming. And this isn't much fun right now. And I feel like a small group compared to them. He just comes back to them and says, Don't give up. Don't quit. Stand firm. God will fulfill His promises. Wayne Gruden, I shared this at the end of last week, summed up really what Peter is saying there. Let me read it to you again because it's so important that I think we see the Bible as one story. Not multiple things God's doing, but one thing. He summed up verses 4 to 10 in his commentary on 1 Peter this way. He says, Peter says that God has bestowed on the church almost all the blessings promised to Israel in the Old Testament. The dwelling place of God is no longer the Jerusalem temple, for Christians are the new temple of God. The priesthood, able to offer acceptable sacrifices to God, is no longer descended from Aaron, for Christians are now the true royal priesthood, with access before God's throne. That's, that's huge. And why? You remember I said that the priest had to prepare himself to go before God and represent the people? All of that preparation, all of that stuff you read in the Old Testament, all of those things about how he had to make himself ceremonial clean is a picture of what Christ has done completely. You are and a priest because now you've been cleansed by Christ and covered in his righteousness. You have access. You don't need a priest to go before you. That's why we don't call myself a priest We don't need priests anymore. We don't need somebody to be a mediator between us and God anymore. Because we have access. We are a royal priesthood. Able to offer acceptable sacrifices to God, it says. We are God's chosen people are no longer said to be physically descended from Abraham, for Christians are now the true chosen race. The nation blessed by God is no longer the nation of Israel, for Christians are now God's true holy nation. The people of Israel are no longer said to be the people of God, for Christians, both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, are now God's people. And those who have received mercy. Moreover, Peter takes these quotations from context which repeatedly warn that God will reject his people who persist in rebellion against him, who reject the precious cornerstone. He's the key. Those who trust in Him will never be put to shame. Remember, that's in this text as well. They'll never be disappointed. You will be disappointed if you reject the cornerstone, but not if you, not if you receive Him. God will fulfill all of His promises because you're standing on the cornerstone, Christ. What more could be needed in order to say with assurance that the church has now become the true Israel of God? I can't unpack all of this to you, but in essence... All of the promises are yes in Christ. In a sense, Christ is the true Israel. He, was, he is in whom all those promises are fulfilled. 
And because we're in Him, we are an extension of that true Israel. We're an extension of the true Israel of God, the church, because we're united to Christ. All the promises are yes in Christ. You see all of those promises. Now, we talk about promises, uh, and, and God fulfills His promise. One of the dangers is sometimes we get the promise wrong. If you decide that this is a promise God has made, and, and it's a promise He's made, and you, and you misunderstand that promise, God's not, not obligated to fulfill a promise that you get wrong. You understand that, don't you? That's why there's some work involving what the promises are. But once you get them, you can stand on them. You need to make sure it's a promise. God will fulfill His promise. A promise to His people. Now, I'm reminded again this week of how important it was to say what I said last week. I, I hope it connected with you. Let me, let me do this one more time to say you are at the epicenter of what God is doing if you're in Christ. I was reminded of that as I sat in my office this week and a young lady came who, who actually was in the same class as my daughter in high school. Remember I told you that one of the things that I wanted to, um, to convey to you is, and to my children was that, that this is not a Richland church thing. This is not a denominational thing. This is what God is doing in the world. This thing called Christianity, this trusting in Christ and not being disappointed is a global thing God is doing. And to give them a bigger picture of it, not, not just some isolated thing that we do here. And as that young person sat in my office who, who was not a believer, was, was not in this description of a chosen race, they'd say themselves, that didn't apply to me. I didn't care about Christ. I had not received the cornerstone when she was with my daughter in high school. But in her freshman year of college, she goes off to a university. And she's embraced by a group of Christians. And her eyes are open to see the glory of Christ. And she comes back. And I sat in my office and, and I told her the very thing I talked about. That I wanted my children to see this as a global thing. And I, and I said to her, you didn't see that in high school, did you? You saw, you saw church as a church thing, as an isolated thing that this group did and this group did and this group did, but there was no connectivity to any of that. It just reiterated to me how important it is for you who grew up in this community, maybe, all your life, and you have trusted Christ, you're connected to something global. It is incredibly important to see that. In fact... That is what this book is about. Turn with me to chapter 5 and look at how it's summed up. We talked about this early, but I've not reiterated it here lately. Chapter 5 and verse 12. In the middle of that verse, he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is what? The true grace of God. Stand firm in it. In other words, what I'm telling you is the true grace of God. Now, as I've said, we live in a culture, a pluralistic culture that, that, that would laugh at you if you stood up in the midst of it and said, I have the true grace of God. Not everyone, but a majority would. In our culture today, to declare that you have something 
that's true and, and therefore mean that other things are false, that's almost the greatest sin you can commit against this culture today. But that's what Peter said. That's what Christianity declares. To be a Christian is to believe that. To believe that Jesus is the cornerstone. And staking everything on Him. Not putting your, your weight in two different places so if you're wrong, you can shift it over here. It's putting it all there. And nowhere else. And don't let the culture tell you anything different, that Christianity teaches anything different. There are them that would try to say Christianity teaches different than that, but it does not. Look at the Scripture. Test the Scripture. Take it in your hand. Study it. Look at it. Find out. And you will know that it does not do that. It magnifies Christ as, as all of the promises are yes in Him who is resurrected from the dead as confirmation by God the Father. And that's what we stand in. And I'm here to say to you, if you're standing there, though the culture may mock you, you will not be disappointed. That's what Peter's saying. You will not be disappointed. That's exactly what they felt like in Asia Minor. Oh, oh, it is so long in coming. This is... This is difficult. We're such a small group compared to the rest. The voices out there are saying something so different than what we believe. And the danger was that they would begin to listen to those voices. So I say to you again, young person and old alike, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. Now Peter begins to make a shift. After he has spent time declaring... Um, who they are in Christ and the fact that, that all of the promises are yes to them. Then he starts to change gears and he says it here. He says, Beloved, that's the whole summation, I urge you. He begins to urge them to do some things. He begins to urge them of ways they ought to live in this God-denying culture that they are living in so that they might one day, actually because this culture has witnessed them, over time, have somebody in that culture come to them and ask, you, you are different than the rest of this culture. What makes you tick? What is it? It says that later, when they come to ask you to give an answer for the hope that's within you, tell them. So he spends the next portion of this book talking to them about how to live in such a way that they have the culture begin to ask those questions. He, he talks in the midst of chapter, verses 9 through 10. He says in the middle of that passage where it says you're a chosen race, a royal priest, a holy nation. He says you're all of that that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. So basically what he's doing when he says I urge you, I urge you to proclaim these excellencies and here's a good way to do it. Here's how you ought to do it. Here's how you ought to live, to proclaim these excellencies. How you ought to live so that you might magnify Christ to the world and the culture around you. He says, he says a couple of things, but before he does that, he kind of prefaces. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, because that's, that's what they were. they were. They were sojourners and exiles. Their home now was in heaven. 
Their citizenship ultimately was there and they didn't fit in this culture very well anymore. They didn't fit. Um, They were out of sync with the culture because of a couple of things. And it's, it's in this text as well. This is what I think it means when it says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What makes you a sojourner and exile is that you see a couple of things that culture does not see. Uh, or at least you ought to if you're a believer. Uh, those two things are this, that the two most important things in the world, they're actually contained in this text, the two most important things in the world, first of all, is the salvation of your soul, number one. Actually, not in this order. That's the first one he talks about. The salvation of your soul and the glory of God. We live in a culture, they lived in a culture, that those, if, if you were to number the ten most important things, they would not be at the top of the list. And therefore, because these people who Peter's writing to have them at the top of the list, they are sojourners and exiles. They don't fit in this culture. Our culture, if you were to ask them the ten things, would not put those things at the top of the list. That is not the way you would find it. But Peter is saying, he's saying this, you are no longer to echo their God-neglecting culture. Our lives as believers must point to a hope beyond this world. We're not to echo what our God-denying culture echoes. A God-denying culture doesn't echo that, number one, you need to be concerned about the salvation of your soul, and number two, about the glory of God. Those are foreign concepts, and therefore it makes you a foreigner because you understand that. As a believer, you ought to understand those are two paramount things. And so now what he does is he gives them two things to do to to keep those things, to live as, as exiles and sojourners because you understand those two things. Now live this way. First of all, he says, abstain from passions of the flesh. Look what it says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. That's the whole idea, the salvation of your soul. That's in, it's important. I mean, there's a war that goes on for the soul of men. The most important thing is that, that they would be concerned about that and, and understand how Christ has remedied that. But you see, he says, now don't, don't go after those passions anymore. Don't follow whatever you feel, do it kind of mentality, which the world does. Or fight against those things because, because you're in Christ. Not, not in order to be saved, but because you've been born again to a living hope and have an inheritance. It's a done thing. Now, now, war against those things. And he specifically talks about what those things are in chapter 1. It's interesting how he jumps around a bit and he's talking. But in chapter 1 and verse 19, it says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Those are the passions of the flesh. That you just do what feels right. And you go after your passions. You, you chase those passions. And they take you places they ought not to take you. Don't do that anymore. In fact, a little earlier, he says in the same text in chapter 15, but as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. Be holy. And, and what holiness is, is, is not chasing those desires of the flesh, those old patterns, those old ways, those old feudal ways. 
that, that uh, lead you places they ought not to lead you. Another place, as you jump into the text, back a ways, it says in verse, chapter 2 and verse 1, this will be another description of some of those things. It says, so put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Again, those are some of those passions of the flesh. Don't, don't chase after those. Don't live there. Don't live there. If you're going to, to magnify Christ, if you're going to influence this culture, if you're going to get them to come to the point where they ask about what makes you tick, they won't ask it if you're chasing that kind of stuff. Because they live in that all the time. <coughs> Excuse me. When I do that, Alan, shut me off, will you? Okay. When they, when they chase those things, they're used to a culture that chases that kind of stuff. I want to be careful as I say this, but, but uh, I think it has application to where we live. Some, somewhat in small communities, but it happens everywhere. It's just more visible in small communities. And I would incorporate Aberdeen as a small community, although as you get down from there and some of the communities we live there, we're smaller than that. But you see, the culture around us in that day and in our day is used to people living there. They're used to people who have it in for somebody or after somebody or, or in a community where there's always divisions and somebody's in this camp and somebody's in that camp and everybody takes their camp and, uh, and sometimes they go to war. The camps go to war actually. They're used to malice where, where you have it in for somebody or they're used to deceit. They're used to people who say one thing and do another or, or maybe just kind of shade the truth. Deceit. They're used to living in that. So they, gotta, they always got to read between the lines when somebody says something to make sure that it's true. They're used to hypocrisy. They're used to people saying one thing to your face and another behind your back. They're used to hearing it, you know, around the mill kind of way. They, they hear what somebody said to them from somebody else. They're used to that. That's just the way the culture works. They're used to people who are envious and can't be happy for somebody else who has something. So, so they tend to not talk about it because they don't, people can't be happy, just genuinely happy for somebody else. But they always have envy and, and there's always a pecking order. And they're just used to living in that kind of culture. They're used to slander. Slander. Oh my. Slander. They're used to people saying things and talking about people behind their back. And, and some of it may be true, but it just doesn't need to be said. And lots of it isn't true because you got it secondhand and you got it wrong. People in small communities just like this of Asia Minor, they're just used to that kind of stuff because that's where the passions of the flesh take people. If they have nothing to check it, nothing to stop it, no reason not to go there. Now, some people are good at it. Some people are self-aware, really self-aware, and they can be good at it. But underneath... It's, it's, it's there. And people are looking for people. They're, they aren't even looking, really, because they're not even sure they're there. But when they see somebody who doesn't do that, who doesn't live that way, it, it makes a difference. Don't chase after that, after that stuff. Um, it, it, it's so important that we don't run after those passions. 
Now, now there's other kind of passions you can run after, more blatant. These are the kind of the subtle ones. These are the subtle ones that simmer around in communities. These are the subtle ones that unbelievers practice just kind of, it just oozes out of them. Because there's no reason for it not to. There's some more blatant things. You can go over to chapter 4 and verses 1 to 3. These are some other passions of the flesh. They're, they're much more obvious. Uh, let, me, let me read them. It says, since, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest, rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions. Now, here's those human passions. And, and he's saying, don't chase after these things. But these are the human passions, um, and they are described there, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. You see, that's, that's the more blatant kind of stuff, and it happens too. Some people don't, again, are careful about how they do them and stuff. They hide it some, but it, it happens. So it, it, it's, it's a kind of sense that there's, there's kind of that oozing of just... just relationship kind of stuff, malice, envy, all that. And then there's more blatant stuff. And he says, don't chase after that stuff. What I find sometimes is believers don't chase after the more blatant stuff. Chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3, but they can easily get sucked into this malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy. Envy and slander. They just get closer to home, don't they? Maybe, maybe you're not deceitful. Maybe you're honest. But your tongue can lash after somebody and like a juicy tidbit that you can share with somebody else and be glad to be the first one to get to share it. I'm telling you folks, the world is tired of that. And, and when you don't participate in it over the long haul, they will notice that in small communities. They will notice. They will notice and it will give an opportunity to give an answer to the hope. Now, how do, we, how do we not run after that stuff? How do we not chase that stuff? How do we go come against those desires of the flesh, those old patterns? How do we keep from falling back into them? And it's talking about desire. I think we put our desires, we stoke our passion for things of God. We, we battle those desires by doing heart work. Doing heart work. When we're tempted, we're tempted to talk about somebody... We just, we just don't do it. We, we don't do it. And, and we ask God to help me. And, and we do heart work. We really begin to let God do heart work. In fact, it's only a believer that can do that. It's only a believer that can go deep into their heart and really, really have God do deep heart work. So I would encourage you this morning, hear Peter's words, abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. But then he turns the corner. There's not just one thing, but two things. The second thing that he talks about is that we're to practice something positive. Don't do negative things, but also be proactive, be positive. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. They may see your good deeds. One of the things I find in, in, in the circles that we are in um, is, is there's an adver- aversion to 
good works. Sometimes we get afraid of that term because we're so afraid that people will rest in those good works for their salvation. So we say we we poo-poo good works for the fear that people will rest in those good works for their salvation and not Christ, which is a legitimate point. You are saved by standing on the cornerstone, Christ, not by your good deeds. If you think your good deeds are what are going to save you, you're going to have a rude awakening. They won't. But the Bible is full of admonition to good works and good deeds. Here's one. It says that they may see your good deeds. The best doer of good deeds ought to be believers because they're genuinely good. An unbeliever does good deeds in many ways to, to manipulate something to some degree because they're not concerned about the glory of God at the, at the heart. It's not about the glory of God because um, it, it, they don't understand the glory of God. So really, an unbeliever in one sense can't do good deeds because the definition of a good deed is done for the glory of God. And they don't understand the glory of God, but a believer does. And so good deeds ought to be a part of our life because it's about the glory of God. Here he connects it to the glory. He said, they may see your good deeds and do what? Glorify God. You see, that's the goal of good deeds. That's why we do good deeds, that we might make much of Christ. That we might make much of His name. That we might make a name for God. Now, one day, everybody will recognize that, that it's not a manufactured name. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. But now, that's not the case. And so, part of the way we're to live is to live in such a way that we make God's name look good. It is good. The world doesn't know that. And the way we do that is by fighting against these passions of the flesh. We don't participate in that slander and all that juiciness and, and we don't debauchery and all that stuff. We run away from that. But we also do some positive things. And I would encourage you, I would encourage you to think of ways that you proactively, for the glory of God, for the sake of the name of Christ, might do good things to people around you. People at at work. I mean, you think you know where your workplace is. And you know how work operates. And and to to strategically think of of things you might do, good deeds you might do, just for the sake of of the glory of God. Not because you're asked to do it, but proactively you you just serve somebody in a way that that it doesn't normally happen. It just this isn't the way the world works. Just begin to find ways at work and, and at school, young people. I, you have an incredible opportunity, young people in high school. You have an incredible opportunity to do good things, to proactively reach out to people. Maybe the person that nobody else wants to have anything to do with. That person, and we all know who they are sometimes, who are just kind of off to the side, almost ignored, almost not even seen, but to begin to proactively do good things to them. Or your neighbors. What about your neighbors? What about people around you? I think the, the Christians need to be the best at good deeds for the sake of the glory of God. 
I'm here today. One of the means God used in my life was that very thing. When I was in high school, I had attended, as I told the story before, I've attended church a couple of times in my life. And I think the only reason I remember that because that's the only time I went. Um, but I remember, distinctly remember, when I, came, I was a senior in high school. And there was a group of young people who were different. I mean, they were just different. And the best way I can describe it is um, when they ask you how you were, well, first of all, they ask you how you were. They didn't just ignore you. But when they ask, you knew they really wanted to know. They really wanted an answer. They cared about you. And that's the first time in my life I'd ever experienced anybody really caring about me. And it, it had an influence. And I decided I need to get to know that. In fact, there was one particular person that was a, was a catalyst in this. It was a Youth for Christ director who was in our community. And the first reason I recognized him is because he'd suffered polio when he was a child. And so he would be in our lunchroom uh, at the high school there having lunch with different people. But the first thing I realized, he drug his leg. He just drug it because he'd had polio. That was how I first recognized. But then I realized I started to watch him interacting with students. And, and then I began to connect that those students who he was interacting with started to recognize me. And, and it all kind of came together at a focal point in February of 1973 where, where I attended the Youth for Christ concert. And, and at that point, I think God brought me to life in Christ that evening. But it, it was because people were different. They weren't, they weren't out to, to be deceitful and, and, uh, and slanderous and have malice. I mean, I lived in a culture... High school is a culture of malice, culture of cliques, a culture of, you know, being on top and some people being on, on the bottom and all that stuff jockeying. But that's just a picture of life. But these people didn't do that. And in fact, not only did they not do that stuff, but they positively began to speak into my life. So I would say to you this morning, this is what he says. This is what Peter says. If you want people to ask about the hope, this is, this is what you should do. I urge you, abstain and keep your conduct in such a way that people might see your good deeds and glorify God. Now, let me, let me, let me sum this up here today in three quick things. This, this text itself, and then we're going to go. This, this is what will happen, I think, in, in the context in which you do these things. One thing is, you'll have a hostile atmosphere, probably. Um, it, it says here in, in verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that's hostility. There, there's hostility. There's a built-in hostility in our culture to Christ, I think. Um, I, today, I don't want to get off on this tangent, but I think many ways there's a lot to talk about Christianity being persecuted today. I, I, it's just because the name of Christ divides. I mean, what, what do you expect? That's, that's what's going to happen. I, um, there, there's, a, there's a built-in hostility. Part of my, my reason for my faith, one of the things I build the block on of, of believing this is the true grace of God, is that hostility. The world is hostile to it uh, because 
of the affirmations that Christ make. Christ, Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing, the Bible says. It's what the Bible says will happen. But there's, there's a hostility. But, but, he says, keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see something. He says they'll see something. You just keep at it. Keep, keep doing that. Keep not doing, chasing the passions of the flesh. Keep not slandering and being envious and proactively begin to do things, good deeds. Just, just do some stuff for people. Even those who see you as an evildoer. Maybe specifically people who see you as an evildoer. Those who curse you, bless them. And the Bible says this, they may see your good deeds, but it goes beyond that. They may see your good deeds and they may glorify God on the day of visitation. That particular text, day of visitation, can mean and, and very possibly is talking about on the day when the converting power of God is upon them. The inference is they, they will glorify God. They will glorify God. Only believers glorify God. By definition, unbelievers do not glorify God because, as I started out, they aren't concerned about the glory of God. They're concerned about the glory of me. Part of being a Christian, you go from being concerned about the glory of yourself to the glory of God. Now there becomes a tension in those things and we don't get perfect in it. But unbelievers don't see the glory of God. The beauty of God. And so the, the inference is, there will be people who will oppose you, but some of those people will see and in fact be converted because of it. Be converted. They will see and they will glorify God on the day of visitation. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16 says this, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, by definition, that means they become believers. They give glory to God. Only believers give glory to God. Only those who see. So, the purpose of the church the purpose of you being the epicenter of what God is doing, the purpose of you being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, is that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And how do you do that? How do you proclaim those excellencies? By not chasing the passions of the flesh. By fighting against that. Not, not being in the midst of of all that stuff that they're used to seeing all the time, but standing above it, not participating in it, and proactively beginning to move out into their lives, even as they resist. I think that's God's means. That's the way Peter talks. He'll talk about some other things. He'll... He'll urge some other things as we go through the rest of this, but he's beginning to tell us how to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God help us. God help the church. We're going to sing together. Sing as we've been singing throughout this series. That I will glory in his name. 
I will glory in Him. As I glory in Him, as I, as I cherish that I'm a chosen race, a royal priesthood, I proclaim the excellencies of Him. God help us. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that You will help us. Help us as a people. Help us as a people. Help us as a church to flee those passions of the flesh, to to just not participate in that junk. And it it, it will it will be an effort because because there's something tantalizing about all of that. Something about the old ways that we want to go back to them sometimes. And then help us, Lord, to find ways. Find ways to move into the hearts of people. Let's sing together. Let's glory in my Redeemer Whose priceless blood has ransomed me Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him there, that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer, who crushed the power of sin and death. My only Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. The Lamb who is my glory in my Redeemer, my life He bought, my love He owns. I have no longings for another, I'm satisfied in Him alone. I will glory in my Redeemer, His faithfulness, my standing place, though foes are mighty.
don't you? He didn't start out by urging them to uh, abstain from passions of the flesh and do good deeds. He started out by letting them glory in their Redeemer. And as we glory in Him, that's where it takes us. Go in God's peace and do that.